This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to The Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Listeners, welcome back to the Humane Podcast. Today, our guest is Matt O'Kane. He's the head of AI and analytics for Europe at Cognizant. For many of you who don't know, Cognizant is a fantastic company that works with digital transformation in the advanced analytics and AI space. We do a lot of work with them, both personally and with our companies and organizations. So Matt, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Excellent. Yeah, thanks a lot, David. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, just to get us started for our listeners, we'd love to learn a little bit more about your background and the work that you're doing at Cognizant. So I lead our AI analytics practice across Europe. It's about 1,500 people we have in our analytics team across Europe, and we're supported by another probably two or 3,000 people in, in India in, in our offshore centers. So it's a big team, and everything we, we do is everything from helping clients around their data problems, through to business intelligence, analytics, machine learning, AI. So it's really about the end to end. And to be honest, I was quite lucky. My, my background started off in, um, in banking. So I, I finished a, um, a maths and stats degree, got interested in statistics, joined banking and realized there was tons of data I could play around with and, and apply predictive models to. I think I wrote my first neural network probably in 2001. Might be short my age a little bit there, but you know, almost, almost 20 years ago now. And I never realized how important AI and analytics w- would become um, as it is today. It's just, just unbelievable. So I started off in banking and I moved into um, consulting probably just over you know, 10, 15 years ago now. And it's probably around the last recession, considering we're probably going to enter another recession now, 
I started to do a lot more work around machine learning and applying machine learning to, to various problems. I can remember explaining to people, I think it was in probably 2006 or 2007, what a random forest model was. And I'm trying to explain this thing. I said, it's like a decision tree with a thousand decision trees. And the looks I had from people when I was trying to explain how, how this thing worked. Um, and now everyone knows, you know, lots of people on the street, you could probably ask, they know about random forests. So yeah, that, that's my career, data science all the way through. Um, and then, you know, obviously I joined Cognizant a year and a half ago to really drive, you know, what the next level is around analytics and AI, how clients are now really scaling AI across their companies. And it's a big engineering effort now. Hence why we've got a big team of people who do all the things you need to get, get started on AI. You know, I remember when I was also very much in the in analytics space before I got involved in AI and I was working with Random Forest and I was working with CART and all these models. And this was the big thing. I mean, back in the, you know, the early 2000 teens and, you know, anywhere from like 2000 to 2012, like CART, Random Forest, these were the big models that was state of the art, in fact, you know, all these decision trees, almost like the one we just looked at with the MTA offline a few minutes ago about do you go left or right? Do you take the train or not? These were some of those basic models. But we've seen such an evolution in this space with analytics and AI. And I'm sure there's a lot more state of the art that Cognizant's working with today. Yeah, exactly. I, th I think I still go back to the underlying machine learning algorithms have been around for a long, long time. So when I was working in the fraud area for banking, so if you're looking at fraud, it's a problem where you're looking at a huge amount of data. You have many, many variables you're looking at, and the number of frauds are really, really small. So naturally, using machine learning was, even 20 years ago, everyone understood you had to use machine learning to solve this, this problem. It's just the fact that some of the models have got more sophisticated and computing power has come along and cloud computing power has come along to, to help us actually, um, actually power these, uh, these more and more. And now, you know, what we're looking at, as you mentioned, with cloud and compute, I mean, there's so much that's possible with the models that we previously worked with. And, you know, now we're also in a new norm, a new world order, if you will, around COVID and coronavirus, which has been in everyone's mind for at least the last couple of months. And, you know, I had the opportunity to listen to um, Harvard Business Review and the Harvard Business School. They have their podcast. They're talking about their predictions, both them and Wharton and a lot of these leading universities are like, is it going to last two more months? Is it going to last six more months? You know, who knows, right? We can we can make predictions on black swans or black elephants, but it's not necessarily something that's easy to think about, which I'm sure we'll get more into here. But I want to hear your thoughts about, are we moving into a recession? Are we in a recession? I mean, what does that spell for analytics and AI? Well, I you know, I alluded to earlier, I think we are definitely in a second recession i think was it two trillion dollars is it you guys in the u.s putting in i mean that's has that ever happened before i, I can't imagine at that scale no i mean in 2008 they put in about you know it was like five six hundred billion or so and now we put in the first two trillion another two and a half trillions about the pass yeah, it's, it's amazing. So, I mean, that money, I mean, it does kind of grow on trees, I guess, in some way, but but it has an impact. You know, it has a massive impact. And we're obviously going to enter a, a large recession after this. And unfortunately, I don't think anyone can really imagine it's going to be any better than that. Um, 
And and really, to be honest, when I started this year, I felt we were going to enter a recession even without COVID, mm. just the way the economy was going, the global economy. So we're in that state. And I've been in that time before, you know, go back to 2008, 2009. And the type of AI and the type of work you can do within the AI space will change dramatically. I think it's unfortunate to say things like revenue generating opportunities for AI are going to be less on the priority list for at least the next year, I'd say. And it's probably going to be more around cost reduction, et cetera, unfortunately. You know, I remember last year, which seems a lifetime away now, right? 2019, I remember when I was listening to Yashua Bengio and Gary Marcus and a lot of these leading thought leaders as well in the AI space saying, you know, are we coming up on the fourth AI winter? And this is before anything COVID, you know, we have the constant cycles of hype and reality and, and all that moves between and everyone was saying, no, no, maybe there'll be a little cooling. We have a lot of exciting technology. And on the show today, we will be talking about still some of that state-of-the-art technology and best practices used at Cognizant. But what do you think AI looks like in this new recession? Well, if we if we say it's moving from revenue ge- generating opportunities to cost optimization opportunities. So most organizations, when they exit this, and I was talking to one particular client the other week who's saying, we're not selling anything at the moment. Our clients aren't buying anything from us at the moment, but we still have a lot of fixed costs that we have across the business and how we can reduce those fixed costs, how we can use AI to actually automate manual processes, et cetera. So I think we're really going to see a big shift towards automation around AI. And we're seeing a lot of clients are working at the moment looking to apply AI in new areas they probably hadn't thought of before, you know, in back-end operations, in um in a claims handling department, in a customer service center. So we're going to see a lot more of that. What I do hope is we don't see a lot more of the more sinister side of AI, which is around, you know, observing people and breaking privacy. We're probably not seeing a huge amount of that in China, which probably points, uh, it's fairly positive, I think. So as long as we don't move to that side, but I think the automation and the fact that automation means less jobs in a recession and it takes away human effort, I think we have to square up to that is going to be a, 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 the reality at the moment. So we know that data privacy has been a big topic in the last few years. GDPR passed, CCPA passed. Prior to COVID, you know, New York was planning the New York Privacy Act, similar to CCPA. And I think some of the challenges are exactly what you're sharing with us today, Matt, is how will data be used? Um, I read this example in the last few weeks about some mortgage company out in California that was already creating a checklist based on people who missed rent payments, both for their companies and as consumers. And immediately, a lot of people in the AI world you know, stepped up and said, I think this is, I don't know if it's unconstitutional or what, but there's a lot of uh, gray ethics there. Yes. Yeah. And I, I don't think privacy is going to go away. It still seems to be top of priority when I talk to a lot of clients at the moment. You know, we're just we're just trying to solve privacy problems by WebEx and by <laughs> remote working and by email rather than face to face. But it's still a big issue. And coming out of this, if you're going to apply more data and AI to your business, you just the privacy aspect goes up and up, really. So it's always going to be top of the agenda. 
And thinking more beyond just our data security and privacy, of course, as we're in this recession that now is almost definitive, that, you know, we're just waiting for the governments to actually say we are in a recession, but it seems that it is definitive. There is, you know, um, job consolidation and job loss across the board. One of the big important things for organizations to do today is to manage those fixed costs, right? What can we do to not only survive, but thrive during this economic time so that we can come out ahead and grow stronger from that? You know, what we've seen, at least uh, internally at the organization I work for Galvanize is fixed costs is all about, you know, how can you have resources lend a hand, right? You're working together. You're in this startup mode where everyone's contributing, seeing how can we build product or how can we put out fires together or even redeploy resources in different areas. What are you seeing on your end, you know, a Cognizant? I think it was about a year ago we um, we produced a report around the the symbiosis between human and AI. And I think it's, it's quite interesting here is that if you look at every job, it's what are AIs good at? What's a machine learning model very, very good at? And what's a human very good at? So this is the work that a couple of my um, uh, team members, uh, Mike and Mike and Sean, put together. And if you look at it, there are still fairly distinct areas where humans are good and uh, you know a certain certain task, and uh, machine learning are good at a task. So it's it's really about taking another look at every process you have, and reimagining it with within in this new digital AI world. And I think, un- unfortunately is that a lot of companies are going to be looking at these processes and looking at the costs of them and saying, okay, how do how can we balance this and reduce the number of humans we have working on this process and probably put them to other uses, frankly. This is certainly a crisis that has created significant demand in some areas and a drop in demand in other areas. And I think that's how it's going to play out going forward. So we need to be shifting humans to the right areas and shifting the AI to the right areas, really. You know, shifting AI to the right areas, I think a lot of it is about humans and AI working together. We talk a lot about it on the show with different startups and different ventures in that space. And humans and machines is what it's about. I think one is the report you just shared, Matt, about the symbiosis. I know, Cognizant, you, your teams come out with a lot of reports on research. I mean, what else have you been uncovering or insights during this time? Well, yes. I mean, the human AI piece is fascinating to me. And I do see this end result. Um, for example, some of the work we're doing with um, with a, an engineering firm that, that sends engineers out, not the moment, but <laughs> when, they, when they're allowed to leave the house, they send engineers out to fix big um, water systems, essentially, in, in, in buildings. Now, typically, if you send this, this engineer out to solve the problem, they're, they're not the expert. There's only about five experts in the entire company. But by taking some of the knowledge from those five experts and turning them into some models, like that decision tree you were talking earlier, but a little bit more complicated, you can kind of infuse the insight and the knowledge from the five SMEs into the day-to-day work that um, that the engineers are doing. And they, they can be using augmented reality to actually see something. They can see the water pump in front of them. They can see some information, that decision tree in the background, helping them fix the problem. And I, I really see that as that's a really exciting vision for the future of, of AI machines working together. So I, I think it, it's about thinking more about those ways where the human still needs to do something, the AI needs to do something, who does what best, really. I completely agree with you there, Matt. We've seen a lot of reports last year from Cognizant and other organizations that talked about 
the future of work and what is jobs 3.0 or humans and machines. And, you know, we're seeing that now where traditionally the financial analyst at Goldman Sachs is no longer just, you know, working in Excel, but they might also be using NLP and computer vision to process loans faster and to go through different documents. So it's not necessarily about job elimination, but it can be about, you know, increasing the efficiency to release human efforts to more creative and mind-challenging tasks. Yeah, exactly. I think we were talking about something before the show around um, snorkel. You know, snorkel is one of the, um, um, it's coming out of Stanford University. It's a weak supervision technique, um, which when I first read weak supervision, it's kind of, you've got to work out what that, what that is. Um, but what snorkel does, it allows a human to, um, to essentially to take what's in their brain and turn it into a model. That's the way I describe it. That's the way I describe it to a few clients that we're using with at the moment. It, it allows your experts in the organization, your best claims handler, your best salesperson, your best engineers we were talking about earlier, to take what they have and their understanding and turn them into um, a set of rules, really. This is called data programming. And these rules can then be turned into a neural network model using the likes of Snorkel and others. And the amount of use cases for this is just absolutely amazing because a lot of problems we have in businesses, there isn't training data ready available. So if I want to categorize some things as fraud or not fraud, let's say for an insurance company, I may not know exactly which cases are fraud and which aren't fraud up front. But I can turn to an expert, a claims handler, that's been doing this for 20, 30 years and say, can you write me a list of rules which you think are actual fraud, non-fraud rules? And then we can turn those fraud, non-fraud rules into a neural network model. It's just fascinating. It, it's one of those technologies that just works. And we're using it with a lot of clients at the moment. Um, we also noticed that, I mean, Google has picked this up. I think they've got a version called Snorkel Drybell. They seem to be using it throughout their throughout their company as well. So, I think it's an area where it's interesting. It's human and it's AI. The AI is very very good at processing all the massive data, but it doesn't have the intuition that's held inside of an expert's head. So, it's how do we combine those two together? Really, what I love about what you've been sharing with us today on Humane Math is that explainable AI is basically coming of age. You know, the last couple of years, everyone's been talking about how do you uncover models, how do you discover different features, how do you know what's happening. And from what you've been sharing at Stanford and even with Google, you know, we're seeing today that there's people building on top of models. So a model comes out of Stanford called Snorkel. And then Google says, let's take a different case study. And then maybe even Facebook or Amazon says, let's try a different case study. And then researchers are cognizant say, let's try another case study. So you keep on building on each other's efforts. I think one thing we've been seeing even in the time of COVID right now, is about open research and around open science and about communities collaborating further together. That's not only being seen here, but I think it's across all industries. How do you see you know, open source and, and open research with your teams? Well, I mean, it turns around to that ethical AI piece as well is the fact that if the research you're doing and what you're developing isn't open and people can't go into GitHub and look at it and look at your code and understand how it works, I think we're shifting away from the black boxes of this world. And we've seen that with, with platforms. 
you know, with Hadoop and and uh, and the, the other plethora of big data platforms, um, we're seeing this more with AI. Is the fact that if we're sharing around different models and modeling techniques, um, I just love the fact that you know Microsoft, Google, a lot of our partners at Cognizant are spending a lot of money and have teams working creating really interesting machine learning research, and then just open it to the community. And it allows us to add on top of it, as you said. But a lot of what my team does is take the the complex research and a client problem and try to fit the two together. And that's usually the hardest thing to do is actually getting something that impacts a client's business, really. You know, one of the things I love about the companies you just shared, Microsoft and Google particularly, is I'm a big fan of working AI demos. Because when you're looking at business practitioners, you don't always know what's going on in the wild. And Microsoft has on their website, AI demos that Microsoft.com place where you could actually go hands on with AI. They have AI route planners, they have text analytics, all these pretty cool features. Um, one of my favorite demos is the video indexer. The video indexer, I've used that before to actually go into a video and using computer vision, see where a person is in a TED talk or a Microsoft keynote. It's pretty incredible to see where technology has gone. Yeah, and I, to be honest, I like what Microsoft are doing about, um, yeah, it's not just about algorithms and code, <laughs> things like that. We have to convince, you know, we have to convince um, the executives, you know, in our company. You know, if you work for a company, you could, how do you translate the fact that Snorkel could change their their business or, or some new deep learning could do to the actual outcomes that an exec would be interested in? And I think what Microsoft are doing is fantastic, just making it really simple Try it out yourself, see the results visually is the way to get people to understand it, really. So let's dive deeper into ethical AI and use cases, but more around the government level. We've talked a little bit about GDPR and CCPA, and you know, you're here in London and the United Kingdom, and you know, the government has definitely been pretty vocal about what they're looking to do. I know that we've seen in the United States, particularly the Department of Defense came out with their call for AI ethics. We've seen the Rome call for AI ethics. We know in the EU, there's been the EU ethics, both through the commission and the parliament. What are you seeing from the UK government specifically? Well, ethical AI, I always find quite interesting because this is a problem that's been around for 20 to 30 years. I'd argue. So, you know, I, I started my career building credit scoring models, and you had to be extremely careful about what information you put into those scoring models. I think we saw something on the news, I think it was, it was US story around the Apple card, where it had given a different credit limit to um, the wife as to the husband. And I, I remember reading that thinking, this isn't because of AI. This has always been a problem. I was having this problem 20 years ago. So the problem isn't necessarily new but i think what's really nice is that again like a lot of things in air everyone has understood how important it is so the work the uk government has been doing they have um they've used their turing institute which does a lot of research around ai they've used that to develop a set of ethical ai pieces good set of standards that turing has, has pulled out and then each department now we're working with in the uk government is infusing ethical AI into every single machine learning model or project they, they run. So one of the um, organizations we're working with at the moment in the government, every single time we build a model, we develop a set of criteria that has to go through before it goes live into a government use case. And I just think it's fantastic that they've taken the lead on this. 
and we're working collaboratively um, to make it happen, really. It's incredible to see that there's so much collaboration happening everywhere in the world. You know, we think in the U.S. between, you know, what we're seeing with big tech, what we're seeing with different organizations like the Allen Institute for AI in Seattle and OpenAI in San Francisco. But it as much progress that's happening in the United States, we're seeing those results. And that's evidence of the efforts occurring in the United Kingdom. As you mentioned, the Turing Institute sounds like it's from one of the fathers of AI, you know, and the work is here as a collaboration between government and private practice and universities. I think it does have to start with um, public-private partnerships and then move into creating policies and standards so that we're being responsible, we're being ethical, we're having traceable standards, we're having governable standards. I think they're all part of the conversation. Uh, one conversation that I've been sharing recently with some of my podcast guests and students I work with is about design thinking and data science. And one of the things that are as often not talked about is who in the organization does it come to about thinking about ethics and traceable standards? Does it fall on the product owner? Is that to the software engineer, the data scientist, the data engineer? There isn't much of that responsibility taken today yet. I personally think everyone should share in that responsibility, you know, have new job standards or job requisitions that say thinking about ethics or responsible AI systems. Want to hear your take on that, Matt. I think um, in Europe, we're quite lucky because the, the GDPR regulation itself does have a large part of its regulation that's focused on, on AI. So there are a lot of things that can be drawn from GDPR. And that has meant that over the last couple of years, their organizations have been setting up that, that accountability network who's accountable for data privacy. It's just really about moving that from data privacy now to more around ethical AI as well. So a number of companies we work with, you know, the, the person who is ultimately responsible around um, breaches and privacy is also taking on the ethical AI responsibility. But that's just the accountable person. That's the person who, you know, probably goes to jail if they if they get something seriously wrong. But the responsibility, you're absolutely right. It's from the data scientist all the way through to the product engineer. It's the business where we're actually applying the AI as well, because they're just they're making different decisions now. That responsibility has to go all the way through the organization, I think. And going deeper into the organization. So I think one thing that we're discovering today is that data can be biased. I mean, we mentioned earlier today in the show about that startup in California that's basically flagging people if they're not making their mortgage payments. Hmm, that one's a little biased. Some of them are less obvious than that. We talk about classic cases in hiring that, you know, you're not aware that a model is looking at women versus men, whether they should be hired, but then that's discovered later in the road. And so that can mean anonymizing data or normalizing data or different standards to improve that. But I think one thing that you and I were chatting about offline is as we're moving or in this recession now, it's that recessions are exceptionally good at making it obvious that data is biased. Like a few months ago, we weren't really thinking that certain data sets were biased, but now it's like, it's so clear. So what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, again, looking back at the last recession, I remember working with some investment banks and there was this change in view from an investment bank because they'd seen a recession. So they'd seen the data look differently for a certain period of time. So every time you built a model, you, you say, oh, what would happen 
if it was reflected back in that recession. Let's test it on um, 2008 data. So we're going to have a nice set of data, which is very, very different to any other data around it in time. So if you are a, um, let's say you're looking at call centers, you know, a lot of call centers suddenly have thousands of callers over this period and have less people to answer the phone. So you've got a nice set of data which looks completely different from the data you had the year before. So I, I think we should start to use that and make people really understand that data is always biased. If you looked at that data without realizing COVID, et cetera, was happening, you probably wouldn't realize that's the reason why. So there's always something behind data and there's something generating that data. I think that's the that's my takeaway anyway, Rim. And generating that data is always the beginning case of any project. You know, I've had my design thinking standards for data science where I really break it down into five stages. I think first, once you collect your data, then after that, you're going to start looking at refining your data, then expanding it, and then start with the modeling and then the maintenance, right? All these five stages. And, you know, organizations can collect data. Maybe they can use Snorkel. Maybe they can create synthetic data. But then what can they do beyond that? How can we get AI into organizations to be adopting AI today. I mean, one of the big statistics we've seen in the last couple of years is every organization says it, but about you know under 20% of organizations have actually deployed AI in 2020. So what can we do to start getting more towards that deploying? I'll start with the bad news because I was talking to someone the other day and they were looking at um, Google searches for AI. And I think you know, the, the search AI has kind of come off you know the, the top priority for a lot of people at this point in time. Quite obviously, you know, people are talking about remote working and and obviously COVID, etc. But that still doesn't mean that you know in the next few weeks, a lot of execs in in companies, you know, people who are budget holders who can control where AI is is used, will be really thinking of how they get out of this crisis and what's what you know how can they take off and how can they accelerate away and, and improve business results so i think now is the time if you're you know if your data science has it dropped that much you obviously don't yeah in the last couple months um so looking uh, as we're talking about on the show about the google trends i mean from february to march i mean ai dropped at least 25 percent in total listenership or viewership because well people you know fairly enough have a lot of other things on their mind exactly but i think you you just brought this up and we're looking at the graph now and it has suddenly gone back up again in the last week or so so maybe maybe that's some good news maybe some people have realized actually is it is important but i do see a lot of companies now they've they've worked out how to operate remotely they've got their people safe they've kept the the work going and now everyone's at home and everyone's thinking, you know, there's more time to think. And that's a very, very good time to open up about ideas about how you could be scaling AI in the organization, how you could really get going and, ch and change things. So I think, I think now is definitely the time to have that conversation. And scaling AI is always a good time because when there is more downtime or the opportunity to digitally transform, you want to think about everything that you can do. I know that Cognizant recently had a post where there was a lot of talk about scaling AI beyond the pilot stage with actionable steps. This is actually one that you worked on yourself, right? This came out in uh, late 2019. So we'll definitely share that in the show notes uh, for the audience. But what were some of the actionable uh, steps you also took out for this piece that you published? 
you know, there are lots of steps you can take around um, not just trying to solve for one proof of concept or one pilot. A lot of companies are stuck in that pilot stage around AI. And you've got to think about 10 pilots. When you start thinking about 10 pilots rather than one pilot, you start thinking in the way you need to think to scale AI. To be honest, there's one area that I've slightly changed my opinion on, um, you know, over, or probably over the last year. It's how important getting the right data platform is before you can do AI. I think a lot of clients have jumped over the data problem a little bit too much. And I see a lot of them going back and saying, you know, our data is just not in the right format. It's not um, it's not on the right platform. It's not the it's not modeled correctly. So a lot of clients are now going back and saying we need to solve our data. We need to modernize our data, create the right governance model around it, um, usually move on to the cloud. That's what most clients are doing is moving their data onto cloud, enabling it, and then really scaling the AI. I thought you could probably do both at the same time, but more and more I'm seeing you really you have to have that data foundation before you're moving, moving anywhere with a lot of AI now. And, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more um, efforts there this year, especially now as organizations collaborate together with open science. I think we're going to start seeing that AI into organizations, as you've been sharing with us today on the show, Matt. And, you know, as we're continuing thinking about humans and machines working together, we're moving in a cyclical nature where we're going to see additional feedback, where we're able to come up with real tangible results from these pilots. What do you think is next that organizations should be thinking about? Well, I, th I think the, um, I mean, to reflect back on the of things we've talked about is, where are the biggest impacts from a use case point of view? It's it's easy to get caught in the, you know, the interesting or get caught in the shiny, you know, the shiny, interesting use case that would dazzle someone. But what will companies care about? They've really got to reduce costs, reduce errors, all these things that are dragging a business down. If we can really help in that area, I think we can really speed up um, growth in a lot of companies. So I think it's, it's maybe unfortunate I'm going to end with something quite, quite boring. Do the boring stuff first. Do the stuff that cuts custom costs, make things work better. And then we'll, you know, as we as we fix the companies we work for, then we can get back to that growth trajectory and get onto the more exciting things, really. And I think in due time, we definitely will get back to that growth trajectory. Right now is definitely a time of, you know, working together to uh, embrace this new norm. One thing we talked about recently on Humane with Eric Adams from New York City is about we're in a dawning of a new moment in digital transformation. So I think we're going to see some positive signs from COVID that hopefully will help organizations not only endure, but come out better. From there, uh, Matt O'Kane, Cognizant, you're the head of the European practice for AI and analytics. Thank you for being with us today on Humane. Excellent. Thanks a lot, David. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane.
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.